Hey, this is Randy Robinson, and I'm the pastor of Everyday Church. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this podcast encourages you, stretches your faith, and helps lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Let's do it. So we have been in the middle of a series called Make Room, and uh, we talked about many different topics Within this concept of making room, uh, we talked about making room for the Holy Spirit in our lives. I referenced this a second ago. We talked about making room for the voice of the Lord, to make room for pain, to hear His voice while we're going through pain and difficult situations because God wants to speak to us. We talked about the last couple of weeks, making room for gratitude. How many of you have been focusing on your gratitude the last couple of weeks? Awesome. Nobody. But we are... (laughs) Holla, two people in the back, holla, hallelujah. I don't know why I said holla. I was going to say hallelujah, and then I was like, hey, holla back, hey. Practicing gratitude today. Uh, you know, I told you we didn't have any fast food stores, but you got one coming. So I, I went to Dunkin', as is my, as is my uh, custom on Sunday morning to get donuts for the team. And I pulled through, and sometimes and it was busy. Like, normally, if you get there before 8, you're good. But it was already wrapped around the building. And they're normally very fast. But they had a sign on the speaker that said, hey, labor shortage, just please be kind. And they're probably just tired of people ripping their heads off. So just note to self, just be nice to people, can you? So there was a guy in a long trailer. If he happens to stumble across this, I apologize. Uh, he, he was parked in front of the door where they ask you to pull up if you're waiting on food, which I'm like, you know, it's a donut. Like, why, just give me a donut. Like, anyway, so I thought he was waiting on his food, but he was not. So I went around him. I got in line. And then it was not good. He started honking. And I was like, oh, I probably cut in front of this guy. But he was just sitting there. I didn't know what to do. So he starts honking at me. And... Uh, I knew he was honking at me, but I just, didn't want, I, I just didn't want to acknowledge him. Finally, he gets out of his truck. He's standing on his truck, and he's yelling at me, and I'm like, what? So I rolled out the window, and he's like, hey, that's my spot. I'm in line here. And I was like, bro, I'm really sorry. I apologize. I thought you were waiting food. You know, he's so angry. And so, I, but there were so many people. I was like, I'm not going to drive all the way around and then be 12 people back. I'm not doing that. And so I thought, I'm going to buy his coffee, right? I'm going to stay in line. Don't look at him. Don't make eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and I'm going to buy his coffee. And I was like, he's probably stewing the whole time going, this guy needs to get out of my way. And uh, so we get there. And I was thinking to myself, I hope he's got like, I hope he got a dozen donuts. Like, I don't want to buy a 99 cent small coffee. You know what I mean? I wanted to buy, you know, $10 worth of stuff. And then I thought, you know what? Casey's got a coffee. I'm going to buy him a gift card. So we're there. I get him a $25 gift card. I bought it with the church money. So you donated to somebody today. <laughs> Our church sowed some seed into somebody who was having a bad morning. And uh, <clears throat> thank you for your, for your offerings. Lewis was right. Your, our money goes to help other people. And so I bought, I bought him a $25 gift card. And I said, hey. Uh, so the guy's handing it to him. I was like, hey, I just want you to give this to the guy behind me. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah. I cut in front of him. I'm trying to make it right. Make sure you give it to him. Don't put it in your pocket. And so, uh, so we're going through. And then I was like, and then I want to pay for his, I want to pay for his meal or whatever he got. And then so he goes... And, they're running slow, so he rings it up because you sure want to pay for all of it? And I was thinking, <laughs> how, how much is it? Like, maybe I'll keep the $25 gift card and just pay for your meal. But anyway, it was like $18. He was like, you sure? And I was like, yeah. So we blessed the guy, and I just prayed that God would bless him, that he would have a fantastic day. Why am I telling this story? What was I talking about? Gratitude. <laughs> this is a carryover from last week. 
Listen, thank you for paying attention. I was not going to let him steal my gratitude this morning because I was getting like, Ugh, you know what I mean? So gratitude. Anybody else working on gratitude? All right. That's, that's you know, we'll get the rabbit trail over on the front end and then you don't have to worry about it. Our new people are like, I did not know what's going on. Uh, I apologize, but not really because this is just who we are. Uh, this happens regularly. Uh, all right. So we're in the middle of a series called Making Room. And we talked about the last couple of weeks how gratitude can actually, it's been proven scientifically and medically to rewire your brain. That it can reduce anxiety, stress, depression, even physical pain in our bodies when we uh, begin to practice gratitude regularly on a daily basis. That it actually does something inside of our brain that releases chemicals that brings healing to our bodies. And so those of you that haven't been practicing gratitude, practice it because it will change your life, not only spiritually, but physically and emotionally. Today we're going to talk about making room for worship And I'm going to spend three weeks probably on the topic of worship leading up to our uh, annual Christmas morning of worship, which will happen the second week of uh, December, where it will just be a morning where we come together just to lift up the name of Jesus in song and and sing some Christmas songs and just ask that his presence would show up in a tangible way. So I'm going to spend the next three weeks talking about that. Um, I don't know exactly what God wants to do in that moment or in our lives as we move forward, but I believe deep down that he wants to do something significant. I believe that he wants to breathe new life into our souls, that he wants to bring healing physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Um, We certainly don't have to wait three weeks for that morning of worship for those kinds of things to happen. I'm simply saying that I believe that in the weeks to come that God wants to do something significant. God is preparing us. He's helping us to see the need for making room in every area of our lives. Um, Every week, we're having to physically make room in this building by adding chairs, squeezing the rows a little tighter when they were, you know, they were pretty far apart and we're having to push things forward. We almost have all of our chairs out at this point and we're pretty full and there's a lot of people out. And I'm grateful. Um. I sent a picture. I was here straightening chairs last night, and I sent a picture to Katie of an empty room. I was like, this started in our living room. Now we're having to set out 100 chairs. Amen. People aren't here. I don't know what's next. I mean, we, can't, we can grow a little bit more in this space, and then some of you are not going to like this, but the, the next step is, is probably moving to two services. Like, and I know that puts strain on volunteers and everybody else, but I, I don't know what else to do. Other than to say, cut it off, say, oh, you can't come. Like, you know. But I don't believe that that's what God has for us. I don't believe that bigger is always better. But if God's moving, we want to get on that wave and ride it. You know what I mean? Anyway, so even physically, we're having to make room. Um, But as we make room, as we've been making room internally the last several weeks, I feel God's doing something externally. He's just begun to do something in our midst, and I'm grateful for it. Um, As we jump into this topic of making room for worship, uh, I'm reminded that some of the principles that we talked about regarding gratitude are applicable also to worship. Uh, For example, last week we said that gratitude that is not expressed is often perceived as ingratitude. In other words, gratitude cannot be expressed internally. And the same is true of our praise and worship. Praise cannot be expressed internally. Anyone ever train a dog? 
Only a couple of people. This next analogy won't be that great. But uh, when you're training an animal, or we have children, which is basically the same thing, uh, we use positive reinforcement. So in other words, when the, the said animal does what it's supposed to do, we give a reward and we use verbal affirmation or praise to let the dog or animal know that he's done a good job. Anybody ever done that? Who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? Don't act like you don't talk to your pets like that. I know you do. I've seen your social media posts. <clears throat> Coincidentally, ladies, this works amazingly on your man as well. Anytime that he does something that you like, if you will respond with, who's a good boy? Who's a good? Rub his belly. Rub his belly and give him food. He will repeat those actions. <clears throat> but here's the question. So when your dog or your child or your husband does something good, if you didn't respond in any way, how would the dog that you're training know that he had done what he was supposed to do? You could look at him and be praising him on the inside without verbalizing Anything with no action, not petting him, not patting him, not talking to him. And the dog would not receive that praise because you kept it internally. Does that make sense? So praise, gratitude, those kinds of things must be manifested externally or it's not really praise. And we're going to revisit that in, in the, this concept uh, as we move forward with this uh, in the next couple of weeks. But I want to begin today with talking about what worship is. The church, myself included, has inadvertently taken away from what true worship is. And Paul gives us the definition in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He says, in view of God's mercy. In other words, because of the mercy that God has shown you, so what is mercy? Mercy is when someone has the power to punish you for wrong that was committed, but they choose not to out of compassion. Amen. Let me say it again. Mercy is when someone has the power to punish you for wrong that was committed, but chooses not to out of compassion. God the Father has the power to punish us. We deserved punishment. We deserved death. Yet out of compassion, he chose to send his son Jesus in our place. He extended mercy to us, not giving us the punishment that we deserved. Amen. You see, mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is when you do get what you don't deserve. Mercy says, you deserve to be punished, but I'm going to withhold my punishment out of compassion. Grace says, you don't deserve to be a son or a daughter, but I'm going to adopt you into the family anyway, so that you're no longer a slave, but a child of God. You don't deserve to be called righteous, but I'm going to wrap you in a robe of righteousness so that you can be in right standing with the Father. That's what grace is. Paul says, in view of God's mercy... In view of all of the punishment that we deserved but didn't receive, the least we could do is offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our true and proper worship. So what does it mean to sacrifice? The word sacrifice in the Greek is thusia. And that is, uh, that's a phonetic spelling. That's not really how you spell it. But thusia. And it means sacrifice or victim. The root word is thuo, and it means this, to immolate, which is sacrifice, especially by fire, to slay, to kill, 
to slaughter. Look, and I know that this is very strong language, but the modern church has inadvertently diminished the value of the word worship. In our modern context, we associate worship as music, as in we just did worship. And we were worshiping, that's part of it. But at this point, praise and worship has its own music genre, right? Right along with the rap and hip-hop and R&B, Christian contemporary, pop, country, whatever, whatever style that you like, there's also a genre called praise and worship. And singing and playing instruments are a part of praise and worship. And we're going to talk specifically about that in the next two weeks. I don't want to diminish the importance of that. I mean, obviously, we believe in it or we wouldn't be doing that. But that's not all that worship is. True worship is about sacrifice. And we've done ourselves an injustice by, not, uh, by making music and worship inseparable. See, not all Christian or church music is worship. And certainly not all worship is music. Because worship's not about style, it's not about lights and production, worship is not about loud or soft, and I'm not opposed to any of that, I love it loud and proud. I like the lights and the fog and the production, I mean, all of that can be a part of worship as someone is using their gifts in whatever, you know, however that God has blessed them. Like, I have a style that I prefer, just like each of you have a style that you prefer. But the moment that I confuse my personal music styles or preferences with worship is the moment that I've ceased to worship. Because I've made it about me and not about denying myself. Because true worship is about one and one thing only, dying to self. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul is saying, in view of the punishment that God withheld from us, the least we can do is offer our lives back to Him. We owe Him everything. And when we offer our lives back to Him to do whatever He wants to do, that is our true and proper worship. I want uh, to turn our attention to Genesis chapter 32. It's the story of Jacob returning to the land of his fathers where his brother Esau resides. And it's a pretty lengthy passage of scripture. We don't normally read uh, this many verses as we're going to this morning, but I just couldn't figure out a way to tell the story uh, without just reading it. So, um, let me give you some backstory before we read Genesis 32. The last time we saw Jacob and his brother Esau together was when Jacob had stolen the blessing from their father Isaac. Jacob fled from his brother and went to his relatives in a faraway country. There he married. He has 11 sons. Uh, they would later become part of the 12 tribes of Israel. Benjamin uh, would become the 12th tribe, but he's yet to be born. Now, 20 years have passed, uh, and the Lord has spoken now to Jacob to go back to the land of his fathers and his relatives. And the problem is Esau, his brother, who he has stolen from two different times, is still there. Now, the last we heard from his brother Esau, who was his twin, Esau had vowed to kill his brother Jacob because Jacob had stolen his birthright and his blessing. So that's kind of the backstory. Genesis 32. Uh, and this is going to be more expository in style. Normally we'll do kind of topical, but expository means we're going to read the passage and then talk exactly about what's in the passage. All right, so I'm going to read, make some commentary, and I'll try to tie it all together at the end. We're going to start in verse 3. Genesis chapter 32, verse 3. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. 
And he instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban, that was his, uh, that was his uncle, and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. And now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. Jacob is like, look, I'm coming home. I know the last time I saw you, it did not end well. But I'm, I'm not looking for any trouble. I just want to come home. So when the messengers returned to Jacob, verse 6, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. <laughs> How many of you know that doesn't sound good? The last you heard from your brother, he vowed to kill you, and now he's coming to get you with 400 men. Uh, It's not going to be a good day. All right, so he responds like most of us would. Verse 7, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes to attack one group, then the group that is left may escape. Right? So Jacob takes all of his possessions and he divides them in two. And then Jacob prayed, Oh God, my father Abraham, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. What is he doing? He's reminding God of his promise. He's saying, You're the one who asked me to come back here. In all honesty, he's probably trying to remind himself. And there's certainly times in our lives when we need to remind ourselves of the promise that God has given us. Those moments that it looks bleak. Those moments where we get the bad news. Right? I mean, Paul told Timothy in the New Testament to stir up the gift that was on the inside of him. And I know that's not contextually the same thing that we're reading. But principally, sometimes we got to stir up the promise that God has given us. Even though things aren't going well. Even though it looks like our brother is on his way with 400 men to kill us. We remind God, and most importantly, we remind ourselves of the promise that God gave us. That's what we did just a minute ago when we began to pray. Even though it doesn't, the things aren't looking like I want them to. And things don't always instantly move the way that I want them to. I remind God of His Word and I remind myself of His faithfulness saying, You are the one who said this or that. So we remind Him. So He's still praying. And in verse 10, He says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I had only a staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. I was just thinking about what I said a little while ago. We were in our living room with four people when we started, and now we've become this. And God is good. Although I miss the days that nobody would show up, and Katie and I could just go on a date. (laughs) If we're ever here on a Sunday and nobody shows, we're going to breakfast and a movie. So... (laughs) There's a humility here that didn't seem to exist in Jacob's life when he had left. We don't know for certain how old he was, but we do know through Scripture that 20 years had passed. Um, Assuming uh, he was around 20 years when he left, and I'm no theologian, I'm just thinking this through. He's now at least in his 40s. And that's about the time you realize you weren't near as smart as you thought you were in your 20s. (laughs) Anybody have that? You're you're in your 40s, you're like, oh man, I wish. Wish I would have, should have, could have. How many of you would be rich right now if you were to look back in your 20s? and yeah. Some of y'all not in your 40s raising your hand. I don't know. Get it together right now. When you're 40, you'll be okay. But there's a humility that he didn't have when he left. He's saying, I am unworthy of all the kindness and the faithfulness that you've shown me. 
Verse 11, he says, Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Again, he's reminding God and himself of the promise that God has given him. Verse 13, he spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd uh, herd by itself and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. And he instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all of these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. Again, this is a posture of humility. They belong to your servant. Jacob is your servant, Esau. Esau was the older brother and it had been prophesied through the blessing that their father had given them that Esau would serve his little brother. But now Jacob is assuming a posture of humility, a posture of low position. It says there, or they, are, they are a gift, is what they're supposed to say. They belong to your servant. They are a gift to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed their herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts, these gifts that I'm sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. And so Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. All right, so we read what he has. He breaks them down, right? He's got the, the camels and the goats and the rams and the, uh, you know, the donkeys and the bulls and all of the stuff. He breaks it into individual pieces and sends them gift after gift after gift, depending on how it's broken down, it doesn't specify, but there's anywhere from six to diff- six to ten different people took a gift of, of substantial worth to his brother Esau. All right, so there he is. This is verse 22. This is a pretty popular passage of Scripture. It says, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. And so Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip Therefore, to this day, the Israelites did not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. All right, there's a lot going on in this passage. Back to verse 22. He says, That night Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he sent them across the stream, he sent all of his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone. Remember, 
He's already divided everything that he has into two groups. Remember that from the beginning. All these possessions, he's divided into two separate camps. He's given to Esau as a gift hundreds of animals. All that remains is all that was important to him. His wives, the the female servants for his wives, his 11 sons, and the supplies that they kept with them. And it says that he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. That word in the Hebrew is yabok. It says, after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions, and Jacob was left alone. The word yabok in Hebrew literally means emptying. So in other words, the only way that Jacob could possess the promise that God had for him was by emptying himself. Maybe you're wondering what any of this has to do with worship. Remember, worship is about sacrifice. Jacob has just emptied himself of everything that he owns and everything that he loves. He had already broken things up into two camps in case Esau attacked him. He had already sent all of these gifts ahead, and now all that remains, his wives, the servants for his wives, his children, and their stuff that they needed. He sends all of it across this place, this ford, which is the crossing place called Yabok, which means emptying. So it, it literally, he is emptying himself of everything, and there's nothing left. There's nothing left but him and God. See, if you and I are going to come to a place of true worship, we too have to come to a place of emptying ourselves. We have to come to a place where our desires are put to death. The sacrifice that Paul talked about. A place where our lives echo the words of Paul from the letter that he wrote to the first century church in what would now be central Turkey. In Galatians 2.20, a very popular passage of scripture, a verse, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to the language. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me and through me. My desires are no longer central to my existence. Crucified them. So Jacob was left alone. Verse 24. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go Unless you bless me. How many of you heard this passage of scripture many times? Like, I never really understood the intensity of Jacob in this moment. Like, why not let him go? I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that he does indeed receive the blessing. But imagine what Jacob must have been thinking. He's completely emptied himself. His possessions, his wives, his children, all gone. He literally has nothing left. He was a desperate man. No wonder he wouldn't let go. He said, I'm not letting go. I don't have anything left. This is all I have. You are all I have. And I think that's where God wants us. To come to that emptying place, and that place of sacrifice where we say, God, you're all I have. And he says, yeah, that's exactly where I want you. And we hang on. And we don't let go. We refuse to let go of that moment. 
until God does what he wants to do in our lives. He had nothing left. I mean, maybe you've also been in a season of emptying. A season where things aren't going exactly like you planned. Have you ever been in a season like that? A season where you've had to let go of some things that you dearly, dearly loved. Embrace the emptying process. Let your desires be sacrificed so that you can be raised to new life in Christ. See, our culture says it's all about you. It's all about me. But Jesus says it's all about him. Culture is telling us it's all about you. Look out for number one. It's all about you. It's all about you. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Let that part of your life die because it's all about me. Because true and proper worship, using Paul's words, not mine, happens when we've emptied ourselves of ourselves and we are a living sacrifice. And the man said, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but, in, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Now, if you've been around church, uh, you've likely heard it said that Jacob's name means deceiver. Anybody ever heard that before? That's not actually true. Uh, Jacob's name does not mean deceiver. Um, he, it is true he stole his brother's birthright. He stole the blessing from the father that should have been to Esau. So I guess in some sense deceiver may be inferred. But Jacob's name actually means, go to the next one, supplanter or heel grabber. It comes from a root word called akab, which means supplant, overreach, or attack at the heel. Now, this is significant because this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, and I won't recap the whole story, I'm just going to read two verses. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, this is after Adam and Eve sinned. It says, So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And then it says this, And I will put enmity, that's hatred basically, between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will, Akab, you will strike his heel. This is the same word for Jacob, Akab, same word that God uses in the garden when he says, You're going to strike the heel of the Son of God. Supplant means to supersede another, especially by force or treachery, to eradicate or to supply a substitute for. You see, Satan has been trying to supplant the Father since the beginning. He's been trying to eradicate or substitute himself for God. And Jacob was operating under this same spirit. The Bible tells us that when they came out, he held on to his twin brother by the heel. When they came out of the womb, Jacob was grabbing the heel of his brother, and that's why he was named that. From then on, he tried to supersede his brother Esau. He had literally substituted himself for Esau in order to receive the blessing of the father. And again, maybe you're asking, what does any of this have to do with worship? Because the opposite of worship is selfishness. When we are always trying to do things our way, when we're always trying to figure out things on our own, when we're uh, just always pursuing our dreams and our passions and never inquiring of the Lord, we are operating under the influence of the serpent. In essence, we're saying, I don't need you, God, because I can do it by myself. We're replacing his desires with our own. We're supplanting ourselves in his place. 
But God is inviting us to a place of surrender. He's inviting us to empty ourselves. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Israel means God prevails. See, when we empty ourselves of ourselves and we become a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, again, using Paul's words, it will free us from generations of deception and bondage. When you read through the book of Genesis over and over again, you see generational sin and generational deception. Abraham lied. Isaac lied. Jacob now is a liar. He's lied. But now Jacob is at a literal crossroads. He's lost everything that he has and he's all alone. And it's as if God is saying to him, you can continue to do it your way and you can lose everything because this is what it feels like to be alone. Everything you have is now crossed over. Now you are, you can either empty yourself and receive what I have for you or keep doing it your way. And this is how you will end up. You can empty yourself right here, right now, and allow me to place a new identity inside of you. Listen, God is doing, asking us the same thing. He's saying right here, right now. And that's my cry to him, right here, right now. I don't want to do it my way any longer. Look, I'm tired of trying to play the role of God in my own life. I'm ready to break the cycle of generational sin, ready to break the cycle of generational addiction. I'm ready to break the cycle of generational poverty or break the cycle of generational divorce or whatever it is that you've seen in your family from generation to generation to generation. The way that we break the cycle is through our worship. And I'm not talking about singing. I'm not talking about music. I'm talking about our spirit, soul, and body becoming a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is our true and proper worship. Till we come to a place of sacrifice and of emptying, we will never experience true worship. Never. Again, we all have styles and preferences, and there's nothing wrong with that. We have a style that we've sort of, we're we're figuring out our own style here. It's not what I want it to be, but we're, we're going somewhere. And I get not everybody connects with that. It's just a style. But style is not worship. Until we come to a place of sacrificing ourselves. We come to that place of sacrifice and of emptying. We will never experience true worship. And the truth is, until we experience true worship, we'll never truly be free. But once we come to a place of true worship, a place of complete surrender, it will set our families on a trajectory for generational blessing. And we're going to talk about generational stuff next year in 2022. God's giving me some ideas. We're going to do a series called Origin Story. We're going to talk about our families of origin and how that affects us. I recently read a book that said 
Jesus lives in your blood, but Grandpa lives in your bones. <laughs> but we can break the cycles of generational patterns. And we can break the cycles in our own lives by submitting ourselves to what God wants to say. It's not about me. It's about you. It's not about the style. It's not about the volume. It's not about the song. It's not about any of that because none of that in and of itself is worship. It becomes worship when my desires have been denied and I sacrifice what I want for what he wants. That's true worship. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. And so Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. One of my old pastors in Kentucky preached this message one time. He said, Never trust a man who doesn't limp. Because he hasn't been with God. And some of you have been through that kind of thing. You've been in those moments. Lewis has shared his testimony. He just shared a snippet of it today where it was really nothing, just him and God, and he's holding on. Lewis, you walk with a limp, but it's not a physical limp. It's a spiritual limp because you've had nothing, and you had to hold on when there was nothing left. And you came out of it on the other side, and you got a limp to show for it, but you're blessed. I got some limps in my life. Years ago, going through my own battle and going through my own divorce and now a product of, a, you know, we have a blended family, which I'm so grateful for. I mean, I just speak, speak over my, my children that the, the curse of generational divorce would be broke. Let it be broken in Jesus' name. There are other people in the room you've just experienced generational poverty and it's just over and over again. It's like the moment you try to get ahead financially, it's just like things just begin to pull you down. Break the curse. Let's break that curse off your back. Like I'm not flipping into a prosperity message of give to get, give to get. I'm just not what I'm saying. I'm saying just break the generational curse. God can do that when we surrender everything. When I surrender my financial decisions to God and I sacrifice all that I want and my desires financially become His desires, it will break the curse of the generational poverty. When I submit my marriage to God, it breaks the curse of generational divorce. When, you, when we submit our bodies to, to the Lord and we begin to make better health decisions, we can break the curse of generational unhealthiness in our lives. Amen. But it comes emptying ourselves like Jacob did. It's a yabok moment. It's, I'm at the river and there's undoubtedly a lot of fear associated with that. Because when you're sending everything that you have left across and you're staying behind to have an encounter with God, the fear is, I don't, I don't, I'm never going to see these people again. They're, I'm never going to, I'm not telling you to, to ship your family off somewhere and hope for the best. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm talking metaphorically and prophetically speaking, right? I mean, Abraham did that when he took Isaac. God said, sacrifice your son, your only son. And he did. He took him up. He was ready to, 
ready to sacrifice him. God said, hold on. That's the kind of faith that God is asking of us. Where you take your desires and crucify them. And we allow his desire. We empty ourselves of ourselves. Cross over and live a life of worship. On behalf of Pastor Randy and the entire staff at Everyday Church, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. For more information on the church, please visit us at everydaychurch.xyz.